are continuing this week into part two of our series, Living in a Prophetic Age. And I hope that uh, as we are going through this series, that for those of you who are interested in prophecy, that this will be something that engages you. And for those of you who may think of prophecy as something boring, stale, irrelevant, I hope and pray that it will awaken you to the importance of prophecy and how God has chosen to use prophecy to reveal many things, uh, including the last days which are to come. And so we want to, from that vantage point, look at prophecy to see that it is still speaking today and that we are, in fact, living in a prophetic age where many of the last days are uh, right on the horizon. It's not hard to envision many of the things that the Bible has prophesied that will come before the end. And so we are living in those days, and it's very intriguing and interesting to be looking at what's happening in the world, looking at the news headlines, and realizing that, hey, this fits with something I just read in the Bible. And we see that so often what's happening is things that we read about in the Bible are now being read about in the newspaper. And so I think we are in an age where we need to start paying even closer attention. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that your word is for us today. Yes, it was written many hundreds and thousands of years ago, but it is just as relevant today and even more so as we see the end drawing near. And so, Father, we have come together this morning in obedience to your word to gather together in fellowship and, and all the more as we see the day of your return approaching. And so, Father, we know that each day that passes, we come closer to seeing you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us alertness and awareness of what you are doing in the world. Bless your word. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. It's just one of those mornings, isn't it? <laughs> Part two we are looking at today is uh, entitled Israel from the Graveyard to Zion. The picture you see behind me is of the man David Ben Gurion. Dr. David Jeremiah writes May 14th, 1948, a pivotal day in human history. On that afternoon, a car carrying prominent Jewish leader, David Ben-Gurion, rushed down Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv and stopped in front of the Tel Aviv Art Museum. Four o'clock was only minutes away, and inside, more than 400 people, Jewish leaders and political leaders and press representatives from all over the world, were assembled together in an auditorium, anxiously awaiting his arrival. Ben-Gurion quickly bounded up the steps, precisely at four o'clock, local time. He stepped up to the podium. He called the meeting to order. And he read these historic words. This right is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations in their own sovereign state. Accordingly, we hereby declare the establishment of the Jewish state in Ratz, Israel, to be known as the state of Israel. And that very same day, May 14, 1948, 6,000 miles away, President Truman sat in the Oval Office. He signed his approval. And one minute later, the White House press secretary read the release to the entire world. The United States had officially recognized 
the birth of the modern nation of Israel. But now, having declared themselves a nation, that was one thing. The real question was, could they keep it? Because you see, the very next day, May 15th, 1948, the surrounding nations of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq all attacked the fledgling nation simultaneously, intent upon stamping her out and casting the Jews into the sea. Vastly outnumbered, outgunned, and surrounded on all sides, the Israelis fought for their lives and their very existence. Very few in the international world looking on these events expected Israel to survive the onslaught, let alone win. Yet against all odds, that's exactly what they did. On our trip to Israel, uh, there was many things that I learned along the way. And one of the things I learned was at this kibbutz in uh, the south of the Sea of Galilee, there stands a Syrian army tank. And this burnt-out Syrian army tank, let's see if my remote is going to work here. It worked this morning, so you know how that goes. There's no kids running laps. There we go. Did I, did I do that, or did you do that? Okay, we're going to get you to do that then. All right, so I took this picture, and this picture is of a destroyed Syrian army tank that stands today at the gates of Kibbutz Deganya, which is a communal farming village on the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. It was in the early morning of May 20th, 1948, that the Syrian army, numbering in the thousands, fully mechanized army tanks, personnel carriers, were invading the fledgling nation of Israel, and all that stood in their way from driving through the heart of the nation was an Israeli force comprised of 67 men. 67 Not even trained soldiers, most of them were farmers, armed with small arms, lightly armed, and mostly using Molotov cocktails, they managed to knock out four army tanks, including this one. And then, in a pitched battle, they held off the vastly superior infantry for eight hours, finally forcing the Syrians to retreat. This shocking victory boosted the morale of Israel and completely demoralized the enemy. For despite having vastly superior numbers, they had lost. And in the subsequent wars that followed in 1967, and then again in 1973, many more stunning and miraculous stories emerged of how, against all odds, Israeli soldiers were winning in spectacular fashion. And the enemies all around Israel began to conclude that it was as though when they fought against Israel, they were fighting against more than just men. And now when Rafi, our tour guide, he would share these different stories with us as we toured through Israel. And whenever he would finish telling one of these stories, he would often end by saying something like this. How can you explain this except that it was a miracle? And again and again, he would ask that question. How can you explain these things except that it's a miracle? And yet, as impossible as it was, today the simple fact is that the nation of Israel exists. It's on the map, and whether people want to recognize it or not, there it stands, a testament to the reliability, the accuracy of God's word. Now, in this next picture you'll see a map of Israel. Geographically, 
the nation is tiny. It's only 260 miles long from one uh, from the bottom tip to the top. Only 260 miles. It's 70 miles across at its widest point, and at its narrowest point is only 12 miles wide. Yet despite this tiny size, it is constantly at the center of world attention and the news headlines. Now, incredibly, this May 14th, 2018, will mark 70 years since the formation of the nation, the modern nation of Israel. Now, 70 years, those of you who know biblical numbers, is a significant number. 70 is a very important number. In fact, 70 years is the number of years that Israel was in exile the first time in Babylon. And so there are many different scholars and prophets who think something significant could happen this year. Of course, we're just guessing. But nonetheless, 70 years, it's a significant number. Now, to us, that might seem, in a human lifespan, 70 years is a long time, but from the perspective of biblical history, 70 years, it's as though it happened yesterday, relatively speaking. 70 years is nothing when we're talking about biblical prophecy, because, incredibly, it was 2,600 years earlier, 2,600 years earlier, that Isaiah the prophet prophesied that in the future... God would regather Israel from exile not once, but twice. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. I'm going to read two verses for you there, verses 11 and 12. Now this is a very interesting chapter because it begins with the prophecy of Jesus being the root coming up from the stump of Jesse. And this, of course, is a very future event from the perspective of Isaiah. That happened more than 700 years later when Jesus came to earth, so we see that it's got the first stage. Then in the middle, it has this beautiful picture of when Jesus will reign in the millennial kingdom, and it talks about those famous images of the the wolf lying down with the lamb, and, and a young child putting her hand in a viper's nest and not being stung, all these beautiful pictures. And then in the midst of this, it talks about what's what else was going to happen in the future. Verse 11, let's read it. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. Verse 12, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Now, what's so remarkable about this prophecy is that He prophesies even before Israel's first exile and regathering, even before it happens the first time, Isaiah accurately predicts that it's also going to happen a second time. Isaiah also accurately predicted that the nation would be reborn in a single day. Isaiah 66, verses 7 to 8. Isaiah says this, Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Incredible. Make no mistake. Even from a secular perspective, the rebirth of the state of Israel is unprecedented in history. And it happened in a single day, just as Isaiah said. Never before or since has an ancient nation that was conquered, destroyed, and dispersed to the four quarters 
of the earth. Never before has it gone back to its ancestral soil and successfully reformed their nation. On this point, Gary Fraser writes, You cannot find the ancient neighbors of the Jews anywhere. Have you ever met a Moabite? Do you know any Hittites? Are there any tours to visit the Ammonites? Can you find the postal code of a single Edomite? No. These ancient peoples disappeared from history and from the face of the earth. Yet the Jews, just as God promised, returned to their land. Indeed, who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Before 1948, the answer was never and impossible. These things just don't happen. But now think of this. How incredible is it that our generation, of all generations, this generation is in a unique position to be able to answer Isaiah's questions with the answer, yes, we have seen it. Only Israel. Israel stands alone amongst all nations in all history of having been brought forth in such a miraculous way. Indeed, the simple fact that the modern nation of Israel exists today is a miracle of biblical proportions, one that was 1,900 years in the making. But now you might be wondering, and I think rightfully so, what's the big deal about Israel? Why is there so much attention, so much focus on this tiny piece of real estate? Did you know that of all the nations in the Middle East, Israel boasts being the only one that has not discovered oil? Isn't that incredible? There's, there's, there's all this oil all around, but Israel's like, where's our oil? And, and they, our tour guide, Rafi, would joke about how, you know, God promised Abraham this land, and yet, where's the oil? And yet there are those who think maybe someday it will be found. Nonetheless, why is this piece of land so highly contested? Well, let me give you, as quick as I can, a history lesson of Israel in pictures. So I'm going to need you, Ben, on top of this as we go through these. The next picture is that of Abraham making the covenant with God, or God, rather, making the covenant with Abraham. God, of course, made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Everlasting means everlasting. It doesn't have an expiration date. This promise, this covenant, had many parts to it, but the big ones are these. He promised that he would give him the land. And he marked out its boundaries. And did you know that to this day, the boundaries that are marked out have never been fully claimed by Israel? Because it goes all the way to the Euphrates River, which is across Iraq, modern-day Iraq. So they've never yet received all the land, but they have received some of the land. And again, in modern times. So the first part of the promise was he would give him the land. The second was that he would make a great nation out of his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that was such an incredible promise because at the time, you probably know the story, Abraham and Sarah were barren. They had no children. And here God's promising an old couple past childbearing years who are barren that they're going to have descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. But the Bible says Abraham believed God. That's why he's called the father of faith. Abraham believed God to do the impossible. So he promised him descendants as numerous as stars in the sky Third, he promised that his descendants would become a blessing to all nations. Now that one's been a little on the, well, how, how exactly have the Jews been a blessing to all nations? The f- 
primary fulfillment of that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came through the special nation of Israel, and he has indeed blessed all nations of the world. And finally, the covenant included this. Anyone who blessed them, Abraham and his descendants, anyone who blessed them would be blessed, and anyone who cursed them would be cursed. This one's very interesting because we think about what nations destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and took them into captivity. The Babylonian Empire. Where's Babylon on the map today? Anyone? Where's the mighty city of Babylon with all the hanging gardens? It was the wonder of the ancient world. Where is it today? It does not exist. It is in utter ruins. Babylon, yes, they were used by God to bring judgment and discipline upon Israel, but they also received the curse that destroying Israel, they were destroyed. The second one happened with the Roman Empire, raising Jerusalem to the ground, sending the Jews to the world. Where's the Roman Empire today? Can you mark out its boundaries on the map? No, you can't. Italy's there today, but it's not a major player in world affairs. And Rome has long since ended. And so we see how this plays out. Even if you consider modern times, the nation of Germany the Holocaust, what they did to Israel. Well, in the immediate aftermath, you could say, well, Germany's still doing okay today. But in the immediate aftermath, for all we know, Hitler committed suicide. The Nazis were hunted down to the four corners of the earth and, and prosecuted and imprisoned, and in many cases executed. And the German, the, the German people as a whole repented of what they had done, and in fact, in many ways, blessed the fledgling nation of Israel. And so we see those who perpetrated it were very definitively dealt with. And the nation as a whole repented of what they had done. And so we see that this this expiration date does not exist on this. Blessing Israel is in return to be blessed, and to curse them is in return to be cursed. And those covenant promises were, of course, largely fulfilled when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he gave them the promised land to establish the nation of Israel for the first time. But again... This everlasting covenant does not expire. It's still in effect today. In the next picture, you'll see that Israel had another big problem, and that was idolatry. The trouble for them was that a covenant is a two-way agreement. So in order to continue to live under God's blessing, Israel needed to continue to love, to worship, to obey, and to follow God and God alone. And in this regard, they failed miserably and repeatedly. They constantly turned away to worship pagan idols, such as the infamous golden calf. And of course, Baal comes up over and over and over again. If you've read through the Old Testament, it's nauseating how many times you read, and they turned away again and worshipped Baal. And so after all of these times and all of these warnings, finally God hands them over to be defeated by the Babylonians and taken into exile But even then, God didn't abandon them there, using King Cyrus, as we saw last week. God used King Cyrus, a pagan king, as his instrument. And 70 years later, God used him to mercifully return Israel from exile back into their own land. Then we skip ahead. And here we see in this picture, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Well, of course, we know that God, through all of the prophecies he had foretold, he would send them a savior, a Messiah. He was sent to them. He went to his own people, but the religious leaders rejected him. 
And Jesus, knowing that the rejection of him was going to lead to an even more severe judgment and exile for Israel than the first time, he weeps over Jerusalem, and he foretells of her coming destruction. He even predicted that not one stone of the temple would be left standing on top of the other. Then, of course, they crucified him. And there on the cross, he took the sin of the world upon himself. He was buried, he gloriously rises again, he ascends to heaven. And following this, there is a period again where God mercifully gave the Jews one last chance to repent and to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And we see that happen at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And again, the bold preaching of Stephen directly to the Pharisees, telling them, Jesus, the one you killed, is your Messiah. But though a couple of them believed, overall the religious leaders again rejected this last chance to repent of what they had done. They stone Stephen to death and so seal their fate. They continue to persecute the church, which which scatters. And this time, they hadn't just broken the covenant. They had killed their own Messiah, the very Son of God. And still as a nation, they refused to repent of what they had done. And so, just as Jesus prophesied, the Roman army comes. They encamp around Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, the Romans are entirely fed up with the Jews' constant rebellion and insurrection. They send this massive army led by General Titus to completely annihilate the nation and Jerusalem. And the historian Josephus was an eyewitness to these events. And he recorded the horrors of the siege, complete with mass starvation, cannibalism, and the eventual slaughter of the people. He then records that just as Jesus had foretold, not only was the city destroyed by fire, and then whatever was left standing was raised to the ground, the fields were salted. They literally salted the earth so that nothing would grow. They chopped down every single tree, every single orchard, every single vineyard was raised to the ground. And finally, just as Jesus had said, not one stone of the temple was left standing upon another. And you see in this picture... Today, I took this picture myself at the base of the Temple Mount in Israel. And there to this day lie some of the runes of the stones. Notice, not one standing upon another, lying there. Of course, many of them were reused later on to rebuild what today are the walls of Jerusalem. But Jesus' words were fulfilled to the letter. Because you see, nearly everything in the temple, the massive temple, was overlaid with gold. And so when they burned everything to the ground, Josephus records that the extreme heat from the fire was so intense that it melted the gold in the temple, causing it to run down between the stones. So in order to get at the gold, the Roman soldiers literally turned up every single stone to get the gold. Not one stone was left standing upon another, just as Jesus had foretold. Then this, of course, leads to the diaspora. The few survivors were enslaved or dispersed to the nations and and scattered, just as the Bible said, to the four corners of the earth. But the blessing and the curse both followed them. For though wherever they went, they still prospered, financially they seemed to always do well, they were also despised and persecuted almost everywhere they went. Ruthless pogroms nearly everywhere, always singling out the Jews. And in the meantime, the Romans gave one final insult to the land that they had ravished, the now desolate land of Israel. 
They named it after Israel's worst enemies. They looked back in scriptures and said, who are the Israel's worst enemies? Let's name the land after them. They found in the, in the Bible the Philistines. The Philistines are Israel's worst enemies. Let's name the land after them. And that is how Palestine came to be. Talk about adding the ultimate insult to injury. Your nation has been taken, destroyed, and now named after the Philistines, Palestine. We jump ahead in time. The Jews are established all around the world. And then came Adolf Hitler, the Nazis, and the Holocaust. In 1933, there were 9 million Jews estimated to be living in 21 European countries. 9 million in 1933. In 1945, 6 million of them were dead. Two out of every three. Two out of every threes in Europe Brutally and systematically murdered. Now, I know this isn't news to any of you. It's not to me either. I've been a student of history. I've been interested in history for most of my life, so the details are not new to me. But when we were in Israel, and we got to go to the Yad Vashem Museum, which is a memorial to the Holocaust, for the first time, the sheer magnitude of the evil that was done really hit home. And there in Yad Vashem, the final room you visit is the one pictured here. This room is called the Hall of Remembrance. You see in the center, there's this this cavernous circular room, and around the outside are bookshelves. And those bookshelves are filled with countless volumes that seek to record the names and information of every known victim of the Holocaust. And to date, they've recorded the names and stories of more than two million people. But the work is still ongoing. The number of books is just mind-boggling. Each one of those books contains thousands upon thousands of names. And you can just sit there and you can't even take in every book in the time you spend in there. And in the center, there's a a cone going up and the ceiling of the hall is this 10-meter high cone displaying some 600 photos and snapshots of some of the victims. And this exhibit just represents a fraction of the murdered 6 million men, women, and especially children from the diverse, diverse Jewish world that was destroyed by the Nazis. All I can say is the effect of the hall is staggering. It staggered me. I could not take it in. I could not comprehend the sheer hatred and the evil done towards the Jewish people. God's chosen people. On such a massive scale, it is terrifying and impossible to comprehend. And yet, out of the ashes of the Holocaust... The world was so appalled by what had been done to the Jews that out of a compassion and some sense of a collective guilt, there was a willingness to allow the Jews to return to their own land. And it finally came to a head. And as we left Yad Vashem, this final picture jumps out at you because of what it says. Because as we walked out of there, I looked up at this archway And I read the inscription on it from Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 14 that says this. I will put my breath into you and you shall live again. And I will set you upon your own soil. And so walking out of that place to look up and read that verse on the literal soil of Israel. After just being confronted with how the satanically inspired Nazis tried to exterminate them. Well, it just couldn't possibly have fit any better. Because in that moment, 
I just felt this thrill of realization that I was no longer reading prophecy, but history. This has happened. I want you to turn with me now to Ezekiel 37. And the setting of Ezekiel 37 is of God showing the prophet Ezekiel this valley filled with dead, dry bones. And God asks him in verse 3 this question. Can these bones live again? Can these bones live? To which Ezekiel replied, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now in the midst of the Holocaust, as their bodies were literally being fed into the incinerators and their ashes were scattered across the land, who could have imagined, who could have imagined that the Jews had any future at all, let alone that out of that they would become a nation again? God then goes on and he instructs Ezekiel to prophesy to those dead, dry bones. And he says in verse 5, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So Ezekiel does. And as he's speaking, a great rattling is heard as bones begin to draw back together. Can you just imagine this picture? Bones, heaps of bones drawing back together. And I debated about showing a very graphic picture of pictures taken in the concentration camps, when they were liberated. I decided against it, because I think most of you have seen them. But just imagine this scene of bones being drawn back together. A great rattling sound is heard, and then, miraculously, they not only draw together and reform, but then tendons, flesh, and skin cover them. And they lie there, whole, but with no breath yet in their lungs. Then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy some more, so that breath enters their lungs, and again he does, and then the whole graveyard stands up. They get on their feet. In verse 11, God says, these bones, listen to this, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. That sounds like a pretty good description. Of 1945, doesn't it? Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you back up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. This portion of prophecy has been fulfilled almost to the letter. For from the graveyard of the Holocaust, incredibly, against all odds, impossibly, God brought the nation of Israel back to life and set them on their own soil. The same soil that God had covenantly promised to Abraham all those millennia earlier. Which brings us to an important point. God did not return the Jews to Israel because they had repented or deserved it. He did it for his own name's sake. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 22. He spells it out. God says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Verse 23. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. Incredible. We're reading history right in the Bible. But now, a question. Why is there this two-stage resurrection? Why this middle stage where they're they're like zombies? I call it the zombie stage in the middle. Where the bones have come back together. There's flesh on them, but there's no breath in their lungs. They're just zombies. 
Why? Well, this is because a crucial fulfillment of prophecy yet remains. You see, Israel as a nation has yet to repent of crucifying their Messiah. As a nation collectively, they have yet to repent and to receive Jesus as their Savior. So yes, they have physically been restored, but not yet spiritually. They are still as a nation in that second stage. As J. Vernon McGee points out, they have a flag, they have a constitution, they have a prime minister, and they have a parliament. They have a police force and an army. They have a nation, and they even have Jerusalem. They have everything except spiritual life. So therefore, the final outpouring of the Spirit upon Israel, that final stage of resurrection, has yet to happen. But make no mistake, that day is coming. It's coming. In fact, as we speak, I believe God is working towards that end. And today it's being reported that more individual Jews are recognizing Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah than ever before in history. The culmination of it is foretold in verse 26. God says, I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So, having learned all of this, this crash course and a history lesson on Israel, what are we to take away from all of this today? Well, the first thing I I really hope you're taking away from all of this is that prophecy is not just something that was fulfilled in the distant past or will be fulfilled in the distant future. No, prophecy is something that has and is continuing to be fulfilled in our time, in our day, in our generation. It's happening. And it's not just in the Bible. Pick up the newspaper. Read the headlines. Just as the Bible foretold, Israel and Jerusalem are again at the center of world attention. Remarkable. All of these things God has foretold, they are happening. Secondly, I want you to take away that the story of Israel is our story. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God chose us. He chose us not because there was anything especially good about us, not because we were especially deserving, but simply because he loves us and he wants to save us and use us for his glory. And yet so often, like Israel, we too sin and rebel and we turn away to the false idols of self and pleasure and pride and greed and anger and gossip and bitterness. And, and like Israel, we can so easily bring reproach to Jesus' name. And the world is watching us. And when they see our, our hypocrisy and our fighting, it brings reproach to God's name. And yet, in spite of all of that, God chose us. And he lavishes his grace upon us daily through Jesus Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. But unlike Israel, I pray that, me, that we may learn from them and not do the same, that we would repent and believe. And thirdly, like Israel, I want you to take away today that God can take our spiritually dead, dry bones and he can breathe new life into us by his spirit. He can lift our souls up from the graveyard of of hell and sin and death and he can raise us up into the eternal kingdom of heaven and the son he loves. And if God can do that, then he is able to take whatever seemingly hopeless situation that you might be currently facing, and he can bring that back from the graveyard too. He can bring that back to life. Whatever you're facing, 
He is able. So maybe God is asking you today, maybe he's asking me today the same question that he asked Ezekiel. Can these bones live? What are you looking at in your life? What are you dealing with? Can these bones live again? May we have the faith to reply with Ezekiel, O Lord, you alone know. O Lord, you alone know if that cancer can be cured. You alone know if the depression can be overcome. You alone know if the marriage can be saved and restored. You alone know if that rebellious child will come back to you. You alone know if revival will come to Killarney. Oh Lord, you alone know if the nation of Canada will repent and turn back to you. Oh Lord, if there's any hope at all, it rests solely upon you. And remember this, he is able. So may God give us the faith to believe, to pray, and to act accordingly. For with God, there is still hope in the graveyard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that no matter how hopeless the situation, Israel shows us that from the graveyard, you can bring new life again. You've done it with Israel. You are continuing to do it. And Lord, spiritually, you have done it for us. You have brought us out of death into life. And I pray, Lord, that day by day and this day, that new life would grow ever brighter, ever stronger within us. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring about new life in our town, in our land, and in this time. May this be a generation that points people back to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.